I would like to review something from last week, if I could, because I think it's um, it's quite important. I'll actually do this probably the first um, four, five, maybe six times we meet. <clears throat> there are what is sometimes called the Corinthian problem, but it's it's just certain um, characteristics of this little church that was at Corinth. Um, as I said last time. <clears throat> if you remember the map that we discussed in the location, Corinth was a very important Greek city. It was right on that isthmus, that little bridge of land that connects the two parts of Greece. And because of that, and for a lot of other reasons, it was a very uh, typical Greco-Roman city, but uh, it, was a, it was a city where this church, as it was planted, apparently... Three characteristics of this church um, that are very, very important for us in understanding um, why Paul is doing what he's doing, why he's saying what he's saying, why he's writing what he's writing. Uh, first of all, the Corinthian people, the Corinthian church, the people who are part of this, had a, uh, an incorrect view of spirituality. Second, they had a, and this is very Greek, very Greco-Roman, they were very dualistic. Now that's philosophical, but it's absolutely central to you understanding why Paul does what he does. Dualism means, and it was again very much a part of the Greco-Roman way of thinking, the physical world is evil, the spiritual world is good. The material world, evil, the immaterial world, good. They assign a value judgment. Now, you and I understand that, that, I mean, that matter, there is also something beyond matter. There's something beyond the physical. But they assigned a value judgment to it. And for that reason, it was very, very difficult for the Greek and the Greco-Roman mind to accept the resurrection. It was, all, it was, it was an absolutely abhorrent idea to them. It was, but the body's evil. Why would God resurrect it? And... It was unfortunately, there's a lot of reasons why that developed. Plato and Aristotle and all those guys believed that, and it just was so systemic to the way in which the Greek and the Roman person looked at that world. But you must understand that, because as soon as we get deeper into the book, you're going to see this coming up. Paul just keeps addressing this. And then the third idea that's a little more sophisticated because it is somewhat theological it's what's called realized eschatology. All that means is they believed that they were living in a form of a kingdom, that the kingdom of Christ had come. And you're going to see Paul is going to start addressing this uh, early in these uh, couple of chapters that begin the book. So let me say, summarize that again. One, they had a, a, an incorrect view of spirituality. As you're going to see, they tied spirituality to experience. And a lot of it had to do with gifts and giftedness and all of those things. Second was their dualism, which was very Greco-Roman. Body is evil, spirit's good, material world's evil, immaterial world's good. Therefore, they had great difficulty accepting the resurrection. And third was their view that they lived, they were living in a form of the kingdom that the kingdom had come, and they could kind of do whatever they wanted. They were what, what's that part, the third part? Is what? 
uh, it was called realized eschatology. <laughs> what, it, what it means, Woody, is, and don't worry about that, but what it means is that they were living in the kingdom, that the kingdom of Christ had come, and they were living in some form of it. And apparently, they concluded they could kind of do whatever they wanted. And Paul is going to address that, as you'll see quite clearly in chapter 4. Now, that I'm going to do that for the next couple times we get together, because those ideas uh, are, I believe anyway, quite central to understanding why Paul is writing what he's writing, why he's saying what he's saying. Does that make sense, or have I lost you? So you're saying that they feel that they've made heaven. I don't think you, we probably wouldn't use the word heaven, uh, uh, Fred, because remember, um, when Jesus shows up, he says his message, the same message John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus, the coming of Jesus is associated with the kingdom of God. The big question is, what is the form of that kingdom? What does that mean? And they associated um, and apparently misunderstood what Paul had taught them about the kingdom. And they're saying, well, the kingdom's come, Christ is reigning, so we're reigning with him. So we can kind of do whatever we want. So they didn't didn't, didn't have another step. That was it. That's that's kind of it. And that's connected to... Well, now remember, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm pushing back just a little bit, because remember what Paul must have taught them and what the New Testament teaches, that when Christ comes back, I believe this is what it teaches anyway, a literal physical kingdom will be established. If Revelation 20 is correctly understood, six times it tells us it's going to be a thousand years. And then heaven comes, the new heaven, new earth. So you follow what I'm saying. It's not that they're denying heaven. And that there is um, the heavenly state, heavenly destiny coming, but it's that kingdom in between. Following? Or have I lost you? Yes. How I understand is they feel more elite than everybody else. Exactly. And they, I mean, that because they believe the kingdom had come, that they're the spiritually elite people. And that's why the first idea, the spirituality idea, and their view of the kingdom are connected together. They really did have, and you're going to see this very early, they, they did have an idea that they, they spiritually had made it, that they were an elite group. And Paul, Paul's going to be, he's going to come down really hard on that idea, as you'll see in a minute. All right, now, go ahead. What's, what's the timing on this? Is Revelation in, you know, is the book of Revelation or its principles out there by that time? Because if they believe they're living in the kingdom, the, the, the chain on the devil's a little long. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, the answer to your question, I'm not sure exactly what's all in back of your question. Revelation is the last book written. It's probably written about right. mid-90s, 95 or so. Paul's writing this in the mid-50s. Right. However, the basic teachings of eschatology, which is the doctrine of end times, Paul taught that. We know that because of how the Thessalonians responded, but Jesus taught that. That's what Matthew 24, 25, Luke 24 is all about. Revelation ties it all together using the framework of Daniel, ties it all together in a system. Uh, is the millennial uh, kingdom mentioned in the Old Testament? Is there? I believe it is. Not 
I mean, Literally. millennial is Latin, a Latin word, but right, the kingdom is mentioned, yeah. But the thousand-year reign itself. Yeah, assigning a number, a thousand year, it's only Revelation 20. Okay. But the importance of Revelation 20 is that it's mentioned six times. Mm-hmm. And it, if something is, a number like that's mentioned six times, that seems to be pretty important. I think it is. But the idea of the kingdom, the idea of a physical kingdom, the idea of a kingdom of blessing mm-hmm. and that's in Isaiah all over the, day the place. Of the Lord. Yeah, and then and then in the minor prophets, the day of the Lord. It's it's something that is all through the Old Testament. And so, but this is what Paul would have taught them, because we know. I mean, we know Paul taught that. Again, the most important reason is because of what is in the Thessalonian letters, and that's another subject. So, all right. Now, I this is this is really an important framework. And as I said, in, in my Bible studies, I don't go for pablum. I, I want depth. And I'm assuming that's important to you or you wouldn't keep showing up. All right. Verse 10, chapter 1. If you're in your notes, it's... Um, what page is that? Page 4. Paul now, he has introduced the topic, excuse me, he's introduced the letter, we've seen the greeting, we've seen how he thanks the Lord for the grace which he's shown to them, and we, we unpacked all that last week. Now, if you follow in the outline, he gets to the first major issue of the book, which is divisions. And the actual, the word that's used there for division is schism. You ever see that word before? You ever, some of you are shaking your head yes, some of you. Oh, come on. You've never seen that word before. A schism. Schism. Or schism sometimes, but schism is, is often how it's pronounced. It's a division. It's something that divides. I thought it started with a C. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> you that number. <laughs> That's an S, Woody. <laughs> no, you're right. Well, I'm, I'm saying, because, it, again, if you've never heard this word, then it isn't terribly meaningful, but we get our word, an English word, schism, from the word that's translated divisions in verse 10. Now, I exhort, I'm in re, verse 10 now. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul does that, just a quick aside here, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's claiming his authority. Remember, Paul is an apostle. And he does this again and again and again in his writings. He claims the authority of Jesus Christ by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As an apostle, he represents Christ. That's his role. That you all agree. And that there be no divisions, schisms, Splits among you, but you have been, but you'd be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, Paul is addressing something in verse ten that has a unique application to the Corinthians, because you'll see that in verse twelve. But this is a challenge in every local church, isn't it? And I don't think. That's a shocking tidbit of news to you because the local church is a messy thing. It, by its very nature, it has a tendency to be divisive because it's made up of a whole bunch of sinners. 
Well, come to faith in Christ and start coming to this local body and they bring all their junk with them. And growing in Christ is growing in unity together. And those differences, those um, sources and reasons for division over time should start to become less and less important. I mean, I've been in Christian higher education most of my life, uh, almost my entire life, adult life. But I've also been very, very connected to churches uh, as my, in my different roles I've had. I'm on staff part-time, one now. And I mean, the local church is just a messy thing. And when you're in leadership, you understand even more how messy it is because you get to hear and learn and people are bringing you all their stuff to you. But that's okay. But Paul is saying in verse 10, my goal for you is that you be of the same mind and the same judgment. They are words of attitude. They are words that are sourced, as you're going to see coming up, sourced in the unity there is in the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit. There should be unity in the local church. That's a huge goal. It's probably an insurmountable goal, but nonetheless it's a goal. What was the authority that they drew on? Because you have the Judaizers that, you know, tied back to the, the Jewish scripture. One says, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, so on and so forth, to, to draw that unity. Was it a unity of compromise, or was it a unity of humility? I think a unity of humility. You see that in Philippians. Mm-hmm. That what, what is to unify us, and, and that's what he's going to get at here in a minute, what is to be the source of our unity is how our, we see ourselves in Christ, not how we see ourselves. Joe and I are equal in Christ. We're very different people. He's obviously so much better looking than I. But at the same time, our differences when we come together in a a local body, our differences become great strength. It's like in a marriage. A husband and a wife are totally different. And if you're married, you notice that maybe. (laughs) But as, as husband and wife, your unity is you begin to accentuate the differences. Your differences become your great strength. And if you don't see it that way, you've got to go back to square one and start all over again. Because in a marriage, it, I mean, I lived with Peggy for 44 years, and I, she is so different than I am. Amen. But in those differences, there, there is great strength when we're together. That's what Paul is starting to get at. So he set the goal. But he hears in verse 11, I've been informed concerning my brethren by Chloe's people. Chloe, that's a, that's a female. She is a member of the church. And so people from her house, maybe more than likely, Chloe's house was where one of the house churches met. Remember I told you that before. They didn't meet in buildings. That doesn't come until the 300s. They're meeting in houses. And probably Chloe's house is one of the house churches. We don't don't know even who Chloe is. We have no information on her other than her mentioning here. But she probably hosted one of the churches. And this is the content of what he's heard. That there are quarrels among you. Different word than schisms. Schisms is the division. Verse 12 will tell us the nature of that. But verse 11 says there's quarrels. There's strife. Uh, Do you know what strife means? I mean, they're not getting along. That's what it means. They're not getting along. There's quarrels and fights and strife that has led to the divisions. Now, 
Verse 12 is the nature of the division. Let's put it another way. In the various house churches in Corinth, there were apparently four cliques. That's a, that's a 21st century word. There are four factions. There are four different groups within the Corinthian body, each claiming to follow somebody different. Now, here is the nature. One says, Paul goes on, verse 12, saying, I am of Paul. Here's this group. Stands up and say, we are the followers of Paul, the one who planted our church. Ah, good. They're obviously the good guys. I am of Apollos. Now, this isn't Apollo, the Greek god. This is Apollos, the great teacher from Alexandria. Apollos was a Greek who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and who was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. Which, is, by the way, is very interesting because the Bible makes it, it says this a couple times, the Bible makes it very clear that Priscilla, and she is always named first, Priscilla and Aquila discipled him. Not just Aquila, who's the man. Priscilla and Aquila. Which is, I don't know what that means, it's just interesting. But Apollos, he's called, he was called the golden-tongued preacher. So he was eloquent, he was a gifted speaker, he apparently, uh, well, not apparently, he did have a loyal following here in Corinth. And again, he's Greek, Apollos is a Greek name. He's Greek, he's from Alexandria, the great... Um, city that was founded by Alexander the Great, but it was one of the great intellectual centers, the largest library in the world existed at that time in that city. And so he was from that, it gave you some indication of how gifted he was and the impact now he was having. Third group, third faction, third clique says, I am of Cephas. Now that's Aramaic for who? Peter. So you have a third group saying, we follow Peter. Now, there's no evidence that Peter ever got to Corinth. That, that, there's no evidence of that. However, because Peter was one of the inner circle of three in Christ, uh, uh, in Christ's ministry, you know, they must have been following. What does that mean? They follow? We don't know exactly. And then fourthly, there was this super elite group that said, we follow Christ. Now, it's doubtful that they are some super elite group it's just they're for some reason they're saying well we don't follow any of these guys we just follow jesus so uh however that and, and exactly what that meant these four clicks we don't know and paul doesn't tell us he doesn't say any more about it but obviously the corinthian people who would have read the letter would have understood so what's he saying here he's saying that the church at corinth is a divided church the church at Corinth has four separate factions to it. So the unity of the church is at stake. The unity of the gospel is at stake. And probably the future of the impact of the gospel in the church at Corinth is at stake. In, it's especially in America, but to some extent in Europe, we have a history of church divisions, what you might call church splits. And generally speaking, 
those splits are not good things to be a part of because when a split occurs, there's usually a lot of hard feelings, there's bitterness, and a lot of reasons why things like that occur. But this is, this is the church in its infancy. This is only 20 years after Jesus went back to the Father. You know, roughly mid-50s is when he writes this. So, I mean, a lot is at stake here. And one of the things that was so... so um, well, may put it, it had such an impact on the Greco-Roman world was the unity of this early movement called Christianity. But not so at Corinth. There's a lot of divisiveness here. There's a lot of um, ill feeling here. And we just don't know what is going on here as to what exactly the substance of these four divisions is. But it's a divided church. So Paul asks a series of questions, rhetorical questions. The answer is so obvious. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Is Christ divided? No. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Why do you kind of be following me? I didn't die in your place. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he goes down a quick bunny trail. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. We don't know who they are, but uh, one of them is mentioned in other parts of the scriptures, but could be, we don't know, that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Paul's telling us something here. This is sort of an autobiographical statement, but presumably Paul didn't do a lot of personal baptizing. Do you know what I mean by that? Where he personally baptized people. Why do you, and he tells us why. I don't anyone strutting around saying, I was baptized by Paul. Oh, you were baptized by that little Timothy guy or Titus guy, but I was baptized by Paul. Paul says, no, that's the reason I don't do that. No, I did a little Bible study 101 question. Uh, who wrote First Corinthians? Paul. Paul himself wrote Correct. it, and he's giving the account of his when he was at when he was at he planted the church there it's recorded for us in first Corinthians uh, excuse me in Acts chapter 18 okay. now, are all these books in the Bible written by the like this one is this one's about Paul and it's written by Paul well not all are written by Paul uh, but I mean the ones that yes okay. yes so I, Matthew Matthew is written by Matthew one of the followers of, of Jesus. That's all right. You're moving into 102. No, that, that's good. Thanks for asking that question. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ should be not be made void excuse me <coughs> what's going on <clears throat> verse 17 is an important transitional verse as you're going to see in just a minute but uh, let me stop there to make sure that you, you follow and understand what the apostle Paul is doing 
He's identified the problem. This is a divided church. And he has itemized for us the nature of the divisions, four factions. And he has raised through these questions, this kind of rhetorical question series here, the silliness of these divisions. Has that everybody, got everybody tracking? You with me? Now he's going to explain why the divisions are there. Why these people who are, who are saints, who are godly, sanctified people, he talked about that in verse 2, are acting, are acting in a way that is disconnected with their position in Christ. You shouldn't be doing this. But, the answer he's going to give are answers that are applicable in the 21st century. There are two things you don't understand. You don't understand the nature of the message, and you don't understand the nature of the messengers. They're elevating the messengers. Paul, Peter, and Apollos are messengers. And secondly, you misunderstand the nature of the message. And that's what he's going to talk about in the verses that follow. Question. So on verse 17 here, it, it says, um, that, and not with verbal eloquence, lest the Christ of the cross of Christ. Is that, is that an illustration toward that effect, or should we read more into that? <clears throat> It's, uh, it's actually leading up to verse 18, which is, and following, which is a misunderstanding they had of the nature of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't mind, let me, let me use your question as a, as a good stepping stone for what is really going on in that phrase. I don't know what translation you have, but in verse 17, I have the New American Standard here with me. Cleverness of speech is actually <laughs> in Greek it's Sophia Lagoi wise words now let me let me take a minute and digress here because this this word Sophia is a very important word for the next two chapters. Now, I don't know if you can read my writing, but my wife and my daughter tell me my writing is out for Carl. My son never said that to me because his writing is worse than mine. <laughs> but let me take a minute to talk about this word. Sophia. Is, that's obviously a girl's name. I'm sure you've seen it that way. But it's a Greek name. Remember, the Corinthians are Greeks. Sophia is the word that is usually translated wisdom. And if you put this Greek word, beleo, together with Sophia, for which one do you have? You have philosophy. Did I lose you, or are you with me? The Greek people, the Greco-Roman world, loved philosophy. This was the first civilization in human history 
that zeroed in not on worshiping a whole bunch of gods, although they did, but focused on and, and really developed the human mind. That's, that's an amazing civilization, the Greek civilization. I mean, it really was, regardless of, of all the things you may or may not know about it. And that tradition continued by the time of Paul. As a matter of fact, in this, in this world, the world of Paul, there were traveling philosophers. And I mean, they, they traveled all over the Greek cities, uh, even the Greco-Roman cities, and they would rent a hall like this. And people would come in and hear them lecture. You'd pay a fee. They were itinerant philosophers, itinerant masters, itinerant wise people, itinerant lovers of wisdom. And you would pay money to hear them lecture on Plato or Aristotle or something like that. When Paul uses that phrase, not in cleverness of speech, they knew exactly what he was talking about. I did not come to Corinth and preach the gospel like the itinerant philosophers that you are used to did, who used the wise words that you paid a lot of money to go hear. You follow what I'm saying? So Paul, and this is one of the things he does in this book, he meets them on their own turf. He uses continually the words that they, and terms and ideas and concepts that were very much a part of their world. So when he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, not the Sophia Logoi, not the way the philosophers that tickled your ears and you pay money to hear them lecture, because if I came like that, the cross of Christ would be made void. He's going to explain that because he's transitioning to that now to the heart of the message. The heart of the message is Jesus Christ crucified. The heart of the message is the cross. And that was repugnant nonsense to the Greek. That was silliness to the Greek. So Paul said, I preach the simplicity of that message. <clears throat> now, I'm going to stop there and let you digest this for a second. All right. Look at verse 18 through 20. Now, I'm breaking this down in your notes. I'm breaking this down. The first cause of the divisions and the first cause of many divisions in local churches is a misunderstanding of the simplicity of the gospel. Verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> the message of Christ crucified is the power and wisdom of God. There's the word wisdom. You're going to see that. It, it, it appears several dozen times in these first four chapters. Verse 18. <clears throat> For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. To us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
Now, I would like you to connect in your thoughts, if not in your Bible, the phrase, word of the cross, and the phrase, the power of God. If you don't want to connect them in your Bible, connect them in your mind. That's a very, very important part of his argument. The power of God is the cross. It seems like foolishness. One of the most offensive, ridiculous, absurd ideas is that the Son of God would die on a cross. How does that, how does that exemplify power? Which is what the Greco-Roman world was obsessed with. How does that represent wisdom, which the Greco-Roman world was obsessed with? How does that represent the kind of power that we're interested in, the intellectual power, the military power, and the social and political power that is all around us? Paul comes into the Greco-Roman world preaching a message that initially the Greco-Roman world responds and says, that's silly. That's foolishness. That same response we're meeting with today. It appears in the 21st century in much of America the message of Jesus Christ crucified is silly. It's foolishness. When someone points in our society today for salvation, refuses to go to that cross is the point of salvation. That's misleading according to this verse. It's off the mark, right? Oh yes, it's not only misleading, it's a path of self-destruction. But that's, that's right. Because we get caught up today yeah. in our verbiage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we think it yeah. has plausibility. It's, it's been interesting to me, uh, I've I thought about that, my wife and I actually were talking about it uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what, what has happened to the image of the cross? Did you, uh, and the reason, I remember what come up now. Uh, it was a movie actress, I can't even tell you who it was, but she was being interviewed or something, and she had a cross around her neck. It was a piece of jewelry, and because today, I mean, the cross is a very acceptable piece of jewelry. You know, lots of people wear it. And my wife's comment was, I wonder if she really knows what that means. You know what I mean? To her, it was a piece of jewelry. But at least what I knew about her and what my wife knew about her, there's nothing that would in any way indicate to me that she had any belief in Jesus Christ or what that cross meant. But the cross, the cross really... It's not a piece of jewelry, although it is. The cross, the cross is a symbol of something that's absolutely life-changing and changed the whole course of history. Because on a cross, the Son of God died to be the Savior of the world. And the cross is a piece of jewelry, but don't tell me what that means. As a matter of fact, I would suggest probably many people that wear the cross as a jewelry, piece of jewelry really don't know what it stands for. I mean, really don't understand the depths of what it means. So when Paul shows up in this Greco-Roman city of Corinth in, in his second missionary journey, which is when he planted the church, and he starts preaching the cross, as he's going to say to us in verse 8 to 22, the Jews ask for sign, the Greeks seek for wisdom, 
But when we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, it's a stumbling block to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. It's foolishness. But some accepted the message. There are people that's still the way it is today. Some are seeking a sign. Some are seeking wisdom. But when you bring up the cross, it's neither to them. But when you come to understand what happened on the cross, it becomes the power of God. All right, now, again, what I'm trying to get you to see is why he's choosing the language he chooses, the terms he's choosing, and why he's constructing his argument the way he's constructing it. I didn't show up preaching wise words. I preached the cross. I wasn't like the itinerant philosophers that you are used to coming through your town. All right, now verse 19. How is the word of the cross the power of God? How is it that? Why to many is it regarded as foolishness? Proof number one, he quote from Isaiah 29 verse 14. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. That's a funny verse to quote, isn't it? That's an odd verse to quote. But he's saying something. What seems wise to a human being is not wise to God. What seems clever to a human being is not clever to God. As a matter of fact, it's often the opposite. How does a typical human being define wise and clever? Donald Trump? I don't know why I chose him. He just came into my mind. I have no reason. There's no agenda with that. He just came into my mind. But, you know, God would look at him and say, his methodologies and everything about him, that seems wise and clever, but it really isn't. For the Jewish world of the first century, they expected a Messiah that would come in and triumph and liberate them from Rome. It's not the way Jesus was. For the Greco-Roman world, used to the military power of Caesar, who had at his behest 16 legions that he could call on, spread all through the Mediterranean world. That's not wise. That's not power. That's not clever in God's eyes. Wisdom and cleverness in God's eyes go to the cross. That's what Paul's saying. And Paul chooses a verse, an obscure verse, seemingly out of Isaiah 29, 14, and says, this is God speaking. My methodology is always to destroy the wisdom of the wise, those who think they're wise, and those who think they're clever. My favorite example of that from the Old Testament is Nebuchadnezzar. Most powerful man in the ancient world. Absolutely the most powerful man in the ancient world, and God brought him down through seven years of mental illness. Verse 20. 
the second proof, a series of questions. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean Jewish scribe. It's somebody who, who copied and wrote. Where is the debater of this age? And as I said earlier, I mean, the Greco-Roman, they love to debate. You would pay money to see philosophers talk and debate. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now he explains that. Verse 21 is an explanation of this. For since the wisdom of God, excuse me, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message to save those who believe. Let's stop for just a minute with verse 21. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Now remember, when he uses the word wisdom, it's, it's Sophia. It's an absolutely central world, uh, word to the Greco-Roman world. I mean, they just love that word. So he's saying, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. If you were a Greco-Roman person in Corinth in AD 55, who would come to your mind? Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Archimedes, Heraclitus. I mean, you just go down the list. You know, that's really true. None of those philosophers led me to God. That's really true, Paul. You're, that's right. That's a good observation. Okay, let's, let's take it to 6th century B.C. China. Or 6th century B.C. India. You have a man named Siddhartha Buddha who shows up. Or in China, Confucius. You know, that's really true. Confucius never led me to God. And Buddha, he led me to look inside and go inward for truth. And what I found there was a bunch of messy stuff. I found dirt and guilt. I didn't find enlightenment. Now, the wisdom of the world did not lead me to God. So what did God do? He employed a different methodology. He didn't use the Plato's and Aristotle's and Confucius and Buddha's of the world. He used the foolishness of a message. And that message is Christ crucified. What to everybody seems foolish is the center of wisdom to God. He further explains it in verse 22. For indeed, Greeks ask for signs. Excuse me, Jews ask for signs. Now, that's uh, Samion in Greek. And if you go back to the Gospel of John, you have the, the Pharisees constantly going up to Jesus. Well, not constantly, but a couple times it, it's records going up to Jesus. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. And what Jesus has been doing for three and a half years, giving sign after sign after sign after sign. They just accept the sign. They're looking for a sign, some sign that you're from God. Jesus spent three years doing that. The Greek search for wisdom, and there again is that word, Sophia. That's the heartbeat of the Greco-Roman world. Verse 23. But we preach. 
Christ crucified. The heart of the gospel message is Christ crucified. Now remember, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So the heart of the gospel is Messiah crucified. To the Jews, that message is a stumbling block. It's a scandalon in Greek. We get our word scandal from that. And it is. It's a, it's a very, 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 very difficult idea for a, a typical Jewish person to embrace. That their Messiah would die on a cross. Their Messiah was to be a liberator. Now, understandably, they missed it because Isaiah 53 seems rather clear that the servant will die, but nonetheless... But to the Gentiles, and that would be everybody else, it's foolishness. It's repugnant, offensive silliness. Verse 12, 24, what's the first word? But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, the word called, kaleo, called, is Paul's vocabulary word for those who are saved. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The two most important words in the Greco-Roman world, dunamis and Sophia, come together in Jesus. And only when you come to faith do you really understand that. That Jesus is indeed the power of God manifested. Jesus indeed is the wisdom of God manifested. Because, I love this, it's one of those, um, it's like an aphorism, it's one of those classic understatements, but the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Seemingly, God, even when he appears to be foolish, is so wise. And when he appears to be weak, is so strong. All right. Yes, sir. Thanks for asking such a small question. <laughs> um, well, it, I mean, that question could be answered at so many levels, so I'm not sure at what level you want me to answer it. But, uh, well, what I meant is you could answer at the time of Jesus. You know, you could answer it now. I mean, in, in one sense, it's the same. But certainly in the, um, in the first century when Jesus showed up and all of that, and he, he, Jesus alludes to this quite a, uh, quite a bit. Jesus didn't meet their preconceived notions of what Messiah should be. You know, they were looking for some kind of liberator. You see, one of the things that really, and this is, uh, this is an historical explanation, but it's an important one. Those 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, you know what I mean, between the closing of the New Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, that 400-year period, is really when Judaism is born. 
I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but it's it that's that's when really what we understand to be Judaism, that's when it came together. And it's after you know the temple's destroyed, the Davidic monarchy is is uh, is out of existence and waiting for the Messiah and all that stuff. And the identity of what does it mean to be a Jew, it's a big question. And so even when they go back under Zerubbabel and rebuild the temple and, and all of that, uh, it's a very difficult time because they're always under someone else's authority, under the Persians, under the Greeks, under the Romans or whatever. And still the question, what does it mean to be a Jew? And then after the temple's destroyed in AD 70, that is enhanced, that identity crisis. And so um, the Jewish person today, and again, that's a very difficult, the Jewish, when you speak of a Jew today, you've got you know, the Orthodox Jew and about five different divisions of them, and you have the conservative Jew and you have the Reformed Jew, and they are so different in many ways. And then you have the secular Jew, which is the majority of people in the world today are probably secular Jews. And so their expectation of who Messiah is is so divergent. But my own basic, simple view is this. The idea of Messiah is an idea that I construct around who I am as a Jew. And in most cases, Jesus is farthest from their notion of who Messiah is. So let's take it down to another level. It's the same problem every human being has. It's pride. I don't need a savior. For a Jew, it would be kind of saying, I don't need the Messiah that you're telling me. I need. My Messiah will be a deliverer, like Moses was. Or my expectation of Messiah is all wrapped around the reconstitution of the nation of Israel as a political nation state. That's what I've been looking for. Now it's happened. That's good. I'm going back. I go back every year if you're an American Jew. And you love to go back, but you don't want to live there. But you love to go back and spend time there, but you don't want to live there. Well, anyway, so, I mean, it's a, but honestly, it's the same, it's the same issue. It was probably the issue in your life before you came to faith in Christ. You didn't really see the need for a Savior. You're doing okay. I'm making it. For the, for the Greek, it's repugnant, offensive nonsense. What are you talking about? This Messiah on a cross? That's silly. What? <laughs> Why do I want to believe in that stuff? Until you come to terms with sin. You don't see the need for a savior. So that's a long answer to your question, but I mean that's all right. Premise number one: the gospel message of Christ crucified is the power and wisdom of God, and He is meeting them on the terms with which they were familiar. A language the terminology. Are you with me? Yes. Say that again, I'm sorry. Say what again? Uh, Premise number one is? Uh, Premise number one is that the message of Christ crucified is the power and wisdom of God. That's where the power of God's manifested. That's where the wisdom of God's manifested. And he is meeting them? On their terms. 
because he's using their terms, meeting them in their terms. Oh, literal. You know, yeah, yeah, I mean, literal. literal terms. He's using the words and terms that they were familiar with. Terminology, okay. With. It was a part of their world. Starting where they are, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, as one of my teachers when I was in grad school used to say, exegete your audience as you exegete the text. You probably don't even understand what that means, but make sure you are sensitive to the audience to whom you're speaking. If I were going to teach this to a group of seven-year-olds, it would be a lot different than what I'm saying to you guys. You follow me? When are you going to have those classes? <laughs> <laughs> Woody, don't be afraid to ask your Bible 101 questions. Joe will tell you the answer to that we'll question. We'll have an announcement right after our meeting. Oh, cool. We'll about six seconds. All right, let's break into, just we won't get much done, but let's break into the second following the, the outline there. Paul now says, okay, now what I want to do, I want to turn, turn it around. I want you to put a mirror up to yourself. And I, I want you to, th he's, he's talking to the Corinthians now. I want you to think about what happened in your lives. You who are in the church. You who are in these different divisions, these different schisms, these different cliques. I want you to think about what happened to you. Doesn't your experience confirm what I just said? That Christ crucified and the message of the gospel is the power and wisdom of God. So he says in verse 26, consider your calling, that you were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. Things that are not that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. So we are running out of time here, but tomorrow I want to take this apart. There are four statements he makes. But I want to conclude, and we'll start with this next time, but the end of this is what you see in verse 29, in verse 30, in verse 31. God has chosen a different path in his wisdom. Salvation comes from a different methodology than what you Greeks and Romans are used to. You're used to political power, military might, extreme wealth, and shrewdness and cleverness of climbing the corporate ladder. None of those help when it comes to salvation so that no one can boast. When we get to heaven, will there be anyone standing there with their thumbs and their suspenders <laughs> saying, I'm here because I did this and this and this and this and you didn't. Is anyone going to be doing that? Yes, sir. 
Not the less of a money thing. I would be surprised if he said that. That's not how he said that. Okay. The law. You'd have to, you'd have to Google. Okay. Because I was just reading this morning what he said about homosexuals on that plane uh, coming back from Brazil. I didn't, I'm not familiar with what he said. Google what. Okay, I will. What Francis said about atheists. Okay. I, I read it and reread it and looking at it. Okay. I will I will Google that. I, I'll tell you, one, one thing I do know is that the way in which every article and every broadcast I saw in his comments about homosexuality, it was completely, completely misunderstood. He was not saying anything new. He was not saying anything that the church has said before. All he was saying, and if you have to read the entire paragraph in which he says that, it's really, and, and none, no reporter I have read has quoted the whole paragraph. They just quote that one phrase, who am I to judge? But that is at the end of, a, of a, he has a whole bunch of statements before that, that in, he's not saying anything different. He's saying the same thing I would say. I don't have the right to judge or the authority to judge someone's spiritual condition. Only God makes that decision. And he, in effect, says, if a person who is gay is coming to the Lord and wishes to be close to the Lord and they still struggle with this, who am I to judge? That's what he was saying. That's a lot different than the Pope has changed the entire direction of the church. That's not what he's, he wasn't saying anything different than what's been said. So the media misreported something. Is that, is that, so you're shocked by that, Joe. What world are you living in? You know, no, I'm just kidding. So I, mean, I, want, I, mean, I want to read well, that. I, I am not, yeah, I'm not familiar with that. Saying, okay, well, I, I will. I now you, you picked my interest. I will definitely Google that. So. Man, we've got to quit. I am really taking overtime. I'm stealing all these minutes from you. I hope you'll forgive me. Lord, we are grateful for the time. This is... Uh, this is Difficult stuff in one sense, but this is the heart of Bible study. It isn't just superficial, shallow teaching. It's going verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, through what is being taught. And uh, it certainly is important for us to do that. If this is your word, if this is your verbal revelation of humanity, it's quite important that we understand it. Certainly what Paul has shared with us this morning, that the heart of the gospel is Christ crucified. And to so many, that's silly. That's foolish. But to those of us who have put our faith in Christ, it is power and it is wisdom. It's utterly and totally life-changing. And that is what the gospel is all about. Thank you for these men and their willingness to take an hour out of a busy day to come to a, a class like this. I trust you'll bless them. Help them to grow in their walk with you. Help them to be good ambassadors in how they live 
and as we try to pray each time we're together to represent you well. In Christ's name we pray this.